Our Old Testament scripture passage this morning is Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. We're also going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. And that can be found in your Pew Bible on page 1,813. 1,813 for Galatians chapter 3. First, let's read Genesis chapter 3, verse 20 through 24. Before we read, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, enlighten us that we may not only know what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, but that we may also experience. We may not only know, but we may also trust. Have knowledge of, but also grasp, hold on to, lean into what is being proclaimed to us here this morning in your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Following the declaration of the curse God has given, we read these last four verses in Genesis chapter 3. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed him. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Many of you may be familiar with this experience. It's one that's quite common amongst the human psyche. You're having a dream. You're at school or at work. Or you're being interviewed for a new job. Everything and everyone around you seems pretty normal. Nothing's unusual. Nothing is different, wrong. But you notice that people are looking at you strangely. They're snickering. They're laughing. And then you look down and you realize you forgot to get clothes on. 
This is a dream. And you say to yourself, how in the world did I make it all the way here without realizing I forgot one very important detail this morning, getting dressed. And so you have that weight that you experience, the feeling of judgment in your dream, the embarrassment. This is not a pleasant dream. It's a nightmare. It's horrible. And then you wake up. And when you wake up, you still experience the last little bits of that shame and that humiliation. It lingers, that feeling. But have any of us ever asked, why is it that that's a common dream that we experience? That that's something that I can share up here and we can all relate to it with some capacity. I'd like to say it's because the deep down, a shared part of the human experience is the understanding that we have done something wrong and that we don't want to be exposed. That we feel that shame. And we saw that in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil and they realized they were naked and they hid and they sewed for themselves fig leaf clothing. But we see something even more miraculous, extraordinary in our passage this morning. We see a God who takes our lame attempt to cover up our own sinfulness, our pathetic attempt at creating a covering for our shame. And he replaces it with something better. If there's one way that we could summarize the good news of the gospel, it would be this. That Christ takes our filthy rags of sin and gives us his robe of righteousness. Christ takes our filthy rags of sin and gives us his robe of righteousness. This morning we have two points. The first is the grace of the promise. And that covers verses 20 and 21. And the second is the grace of the punishment, verses 22 through 24. So let's look at that first point, the grace of the promise, verses 20 and 21. Verse 20, we read, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The first thing that we have to understand is that the name Adam, Adam, is really just in the Hebrew the same word for the word man. It's come to become a pronoun a proper noun, one that we use to name who Adam is. But really, if we read Genesis strictly through the Hebrew, we would just say the man, the man, the man. And so it makes sense then that when Adam sees Eve for the first time, he says, she shall be called woman because she came from man. But here then we have an extension upon that naming experience, that beautiful love poetry that Adam shared with his bride. She is so beautiful. She is so proud, profound. She is so amazing. She compliments me perfectly. 
We read here in Genesis chapter 20 that Adam named his wife Eve. Now, some people have taken this to mean that there's a, this is the first expression of Adam's taking uh, the, uh, the leadership, taking the place of authority in the family. I don't think that's the case because I think that's a, a pre-fall situation. That's a pre-fall reality. But that's the way that God has structured family to, to, uh, to be blessed and to flourish. But they say God names the things that he creates as an expression of his creator authority over the things that he creates. God gives Adam the responsibility of naming all of the animals, right? He brings all the animals to Adam. Adam gives them names. And then we see here, Adam names his wife Eve. Yet, we already said earlier that Adam did this already. He said, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And it's not that he gave her some lesser name, because remember, his name, Adam, means the man. Man and woman. I think more appropriately, what this expresses is Adam's faith in the promise that God has given him in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, we read, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. And so here is Adam... Right after his fall into sin, expressing his faith in the God who's promised that he will take back, he will bring back what Adam has lost. He names him Eve. Eve probably means living. And the explanation for this name, Eve, is because she would become the mother of all the living. See, not only is Eve the mother of all the living biologically, but also spiritually. The line of the woman. The line that leads to Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. The one who has come to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. We also read in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In verse 7, we read that Adam and his wife, when their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked, sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. All the way down throughout history, The idea of making fig leaf clothing has represented one thing and one thing only. The failed human attempt of salvation on their own terms. But when we read here in verse 21, this beautiful moment in Genesis... Right after the worst cataclysmic event in history has occurred. That the Lord God seen these two people. 
attempting in vain to cover up their own shame. Made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And God, God clothed them. You see, there was no death prior to the fall, as Genesis 1 and 2 point to us, that reality. The death is a result of sin, and therefore, before there is sin, there is no death. That what we have here in verse 21 is God's first killing of an animal done by his very own hand so that he could take the garments of skin from that animal and clothe Adam and Eve and cover up their shame. What's that sound like to you? Because to me, that sounds like the gospel. A foreshadowing of Christ who would come who would be the last and final sacrifice because the blood of goats and lambs cannot take away our sin. But the Son of God, who is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Man, who is the God-man, would come, would take on flesh, would tabernacle amongst us, would go to the cross, and would be the last and final sacrifice to complete all that is necessary to take our sins away. And on the cross, he would take our filthy rags of sin, and he would give us his perfect robe of righteousness. Just as Galatians chapter 3 says, all who have been baptized in Christ have been clothed in Christ. But the first thing that we must learn from what we're being told here in Genesis about this contrast between Adam and Eve attempting to sew fig leaf clothing and then God coming and taking away that that attempt and giving them robes, giving them garments of skin, clothing them. It's very important for us to know. We can't cover ourselves. And all of us who are parents, we understand this. When our kids are little, one, two, three, we don't send them to their room and say, get some clothes on. We understand that they are incapable of finding clothes and putting them on themselves. And that is the human Condition in sin. Every attempt that we should make in our sinfulness, in our fallenness, to cover up our shame is only a running away from God. It's only a hiding from the reality. It's only a way to deceive ourselves from the reality. We cannot clothe ourselves. We can't cover our own sin. We can't pull ourselves out. From the mess that we created. Our fig leaf coverings are nothing but filthy rags as Isaiah the prophet would come to proclaim. We need to be covered by God himself. Clothed by him. 
And he accomplishes this in time and history through the seed of the woman. This is the grace of the promise. God did not send Adam and Eve out of the garden hopeless, without a promise of the future. He did not send them out of the garden without the good news of the gospel. And he does not send us into this world without the good news of the gospel either. Christ in his life and his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, where's the fig leaves? The humiliation that we feel in those dreams about nakedness so we can have the robe of his righteousness. He who was without sin became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. So that we can stand before him washed and covered, not in our sin and guilt, not in our shame, but in his perfect life. And what we see here in this moment, when God kills an animal, showing that blood is required, he takes the skins and he clothes Adam and Eve. It's a foreshadowing of what God has promised in the coming seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent. It points to the cross, which is the skull-crushing moment of history, the killing blow to the enemy of the brethren, Satan himself. And that's the grace of the promise. But what about the grace of the punishment? We read in verse 22, and the Lord God said, and here we have another uh, use of the plural, man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not allow, be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And this is another foreshadowing of the Trinitarian nature of God. But more so than that, you might be wondering, how, Carrie, is there a grace of the punishment? How can there be grace in the punishment? In the same way that law and grace aren't always a dichotomy, aren't always opposites. In the same way that wrath and mercy aren't opposites because on the cross of Jesus Christ, we see them kiss. You see, this is not God meanly keeping our first parents from something that they want. This is God's keeping from man an eternal life apart from him. When God says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not allow to be reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God is not saying that he doesn't want us to live forever. He's saying he doesn't want us to live forever in this condition. There are so many movies about people who long to live forever, who are seeking ways to prolong their life, 
There are so many legends about the fountain of youth. Searching for it, looking for it, desiring to drink from it. There are so many legends about the Holy Grail. And if you drink from the cup that Jesus had, you will live forever. And every single one of those movies and legends to me and to you, if you understand the reality that we find ourselves in, is a nightmare. Who would ever want to live forever as a sinful and fallen human being? Is that what you want? You see, there's nothing magical about the fruit from the tree of life itself, but it represents life. And in Adam and Eve's decision to listen to the lies of the serpent and to make their own choice to, to, to disobey God, they have forfeited their right to life. And therefore, now that sin has entered into the world, God in his mercy, God in the grace of the punishment, keeps Adam and Eve from a continuous living, but with sin and corruption. Or to put it another way, he keeps them from an eternal life that is characterized by death. And so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. What we read is because Adam reached out his hand and took from the tree of the, the took from the tree the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat. And so God reaches him out of the garden. It's the same word here in the Hebrew. After he drove the man out, the Lord banished. It's the same word used about Adam reaching out his hand to grab from the tree. Adam is driven out of the garden. And if the garden of Eden represents the very presence of God, then what we have here is the very beginning of the theme that runs throughout Scripture. And it's the theme of exile. Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, the presence of God, because of their sin. In the promised land, the people of Israel turned to false gods over and over again, fell into heinous sin, would not repent. So what were they? They were driven out of the promised land and put into exile. And we see here also another description that is found throughout scriptures. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden. You've ever heard the phrase east of Eden? It's because east of Eden represents going away 
from God. Going away from the presence of God. Yet in the days to come in the people of Israel, the tabernacle would face east. The temple would face east. To represent access to the presence of God. Nonetheless, if you read also the story of a fall further and further into sin and corruption. Not too long from today, we'll read about Cain and Abel. Cain is banished to the east. The exile out of the promised land to the east. The wilderness that Satan tempts Jesus in to the east. East of Eden represents where sin has gotten us. And it's not a good place. You see, the distance between the creator and the creature is made more dynamic in this moment when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. In a very real sense, when, when those made in the image of God were exiled out of the garden, heaven left earth. Yet the mandate continues God sends Adam east, outside of the garden, right? To work the ground from which he had been taken. The work of the earth is before us as mankind, although it will be a struggle. It will be a battle. And we read here of the cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And if we go further into the Old Testament, we'll read about the the structure of the tabernacle and how it was supposed to be built. And God tells Moses that you are to build this according to the measures that you saw up on the temple, up on the mountain, the Mount Sinai. So God is showing them what the tabernacle looks like in heaven, the original tabernacle. This is what the book of Hebrews talks about. That what we see here is a copy. The tabernacle is a copy. The temple is a copy. The Garden of Eden is a copy. The the heavenly realm holds the true form. The original autograph, we could say. And so we see here in this moment that what the Garden of Eden is representing is the very presence of God. And the cherubim, he is put here to guard people. From coming into the presence of God because our sin has separated us from the presence of God. The same way that the curtain and the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and the temple separated all the people of God from the very true inner presence of God. Because for them to enter into the presence of God was to be killed. In fact, the only person who was meant to go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest one day a year on Yom Kippur, and even he was supposed to have a rope tied around him in case he died in there, and you weren't allowed to enter, so you had to drag him out. We went from God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve to the presence of God being represented by a tiny room in a tent where only one person can go into it once a year. 
That's the reality. That the greatest thing that we can experience, that we have access to, that we can have, is God himself, and we have forfeited it. Because of our sin. Heaven left earth. Heaven is now blocked from us, and that's what the cherubim, the angel, guarding the garden with a flaming sword, tells us. Access denied. Yet nonetheless, we read a very important detail when Christ came to this earth. And when he was hung on a cross for sins and crimes he did not commit, when he went there for you and for me, when he was thinking of us, And he spurned the shame of the cross and he looked towards the joy that was prepared for him. When he openly mocked Satan and all his minions on the cross. When he cried out the words, it is finished, and he breathed his last, we are told that in the temple in Jerusalem, the, tent, the curtain to the Holy of Holies from top to bottom, was torn wide open. And what is that telling us? That's telling us that because of Jesus Christ, the cherubim with the flaming sword is gone, that we have access granted to the presence of God Almighty because of Jesus Christ, His Son, because He, on the cross, took our filthy rags of sin and He gave us His robe of righteousness. That in Jesus Christ, heaven has come to earth. Again, that in Jesus Christ, something greater than the Garden of Eden has been prepared for us. In Revelation, we read that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to stay upon the earth. And the final proclamation of the word of God is that God dwells with his people. And it will never change. It will always be. In Revelation, John showed a vision. And an angel asks him, Who are these clothed in white robes? And John says to the angel, You know. And the angel tells him, They are the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. They have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The grace of the punishment is in knowing that what God has promised for us is greater than the garden. And although we have brought this sinful world upon ourselves, 
and are now completely lost and separated from God without hope in this world, God takes the initiative to save us, to take our filthy rags upon himself and give us his own robe of righteousness in Christ Jesus, his son. The good news is next time you have that dream that you're out in public and everybody's looking at you funny and you realize that you're not dressed and you wake up and you still feel that lingering sense of shame, you can remember that Christ bore that shame for you and that you are forever clothed and his righteousness. People of God, a lot of things may change in the years to come. The world you live in now may not be like the world you remember 10, 20, 30 years ago. But one thing I know will not change. And that is that Christ took our filthy rags of sin so that we could have his robe of righteousness. So that we could be with him forever. Amen. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this word you've given to us. We pray, Lord, that as we turn from your word now to come before your table, we would partake by faith in the body and blood of Jesus Christ and be nourished. That you, Father, would give us a foretaste of that wedding supper of the Lamb. The feast that is to come. Our promised destination and future. That you would raise us up to seat with, be seated with Christ in heavenly places that we may sit down and eat with him and be filled with your grace. For Lord, even in the garden, you took the fig leaves of our first parents and clothed them yourself in garments of skin. And so, Lord, in Christ Jesus, you have taken away our filthy rags of sin and given us a robe of righteousness. We thank you, Lord, because this means that we get to be with you forever. And that's all we want. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.